So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Genesis chapter 21. Last week, we covered the first half or so of Genesis chapter 21, and we saw the amazing fulfillment, the final and an ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah of a, of a son, a child. The child of promise was born to Abraham and Sarah. After 25 years of waiting on the Lord, he finally arrived. After 25 years of tests of his faith, after 25 years of having to learn over and over again that taking matters into his own hands is simply a demonstration of not trusting God and and not having faith in his promises. So 25 years later, the child is born. Abraham and Sarah have a son, and his name is Isaac. And then in the closing verses, we saw Abraham's son, um, Ishmael, his firstborn son, the son that was born to the Egyptian handmaiden Hagar, that he and his mom were exiled, that they were sent away from Abraham's household, in part so that Abraham would learn yet again another lesson of faith, to trust God and to lean on God to come through on his promises instead of leaning on his own devices and relying on his own plans as he had so often in his life. And so Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. And that was the first part of chapter 21. And of course, we know what's coming next in chapter 22. This this final and, and grand, this ultimate test of Abraham. As in chapter 22, God tells Abraham to go and offer your one and only son Isaac as a sacrifice. So that's coming. And really, at the end of the passage that we finished last week, at the end of verse 21 of chapter 21, the stage was set for that story about taking Isaac up Mount Moriah. But instead, sandwiched between those, sandwiched between this this story of the, the birth narrative of Isaac and the offering of Isaac, the command to to test Abraham one final time in his faith in chapter 22. Sandwiched between them is this little story in the closing 13 verses of chapter 21. Seemingly insignificant story about Abraham and this king named Abimelech and what happens between them. And I say seemingly insignificant because of course we know that there is nothing Nothing that is insignificant about any part of God's Word. We know that all of Scripture, all of the Word of God is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God, as Paul tells Timothy. And and as such, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And these, these final verses of chapter 21 are no different. They are not insignificant in any way whatsoever, but they do seem ordinary. They they, they seem to tell us a story of just ordinary life. There's nothing grand that's happening in these verses. There's no uh, incredible visit from the Lord and two angels as we saw in chapter 18. 
There's no hellfire and brimstone destroying cities as we saw in chapter 19. There's no kidnapping as there was of Sarah as we saw in chapter 20. And and there's no uh, promise, there's no delivery of of this 25-year promise of a child as we saw in chapter 21 and, and the exile of Ishmael and Hagar as we saw at the end of the passage. No, what we see in this passage, in these 13 verses at the end of chapter 21, is simply a man who's living in the desert, and there's a king of that land who wants to enter into a peace treaty with him. And so they enter into this peace treaty, and there's peace, and it avoids conflict. And then this man worships God and thanks God for his kindness and his mercy to him. Nothing overly grand, nothing overly exciting. Seems to just be very ordinary. But you know, that's where we live most of our life, isn't it? We live in the ordinary times of life. Now sure, there are times of grandness. There are exciting adventures and there are tough trials and crises that come up. But most of our life is lived in the day in and day out of ordinary, mundane life. And what we see in this passage is that God, for Abraham and for us, proves himself faithful, not in just the grand adventures of life and the great big scary times and crises that come up in life, but he also proves himself faithful in the ordinary. The question for us is, do we see that? Do we see his hand of faithfulness and steadfast love in the ordinary of life? And conversely, are we faithful in the ordinary times of life, and not just the big times of faith trials. So let's read chapter 21. We're going to read verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Church, this is the word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to thank you for the blessing of these children that you've sovereignly brought into the lives of these families as they have committed themselves and their children to you and to your glory. We worship you and thank you for that kindness. We thank you for the privilege of gathering as a faith family to sing songs that extol your glory and your goodness and your sovereignty and our need for a Savior. We thank you for these songs that rehearse the gospel for us, that our only hope is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And Father, now we turn to your word in this spirit of worship, thankful for this book and dependent on you to speak through it. Father, the only thing I bring to the table this morning is the potential to get in your way, and so I pray against that. I ask, Father, we ask in faith that you would speak to us this morning. Make your word come alive, even in this seemingly ordinary story of a lot of a part of life in the, in the life of Abraham. Speak to us, Father, and use the truths and principles of this passage to continue to conform us to the image of Jesus. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who are placing their hope for rescue from their sin in anything that they're doing, I pray, Father, that, uh, that you would cause the truth of your word to be revealed to them in a very tangible way this morning, even, even as I speak, that you would show them that their only hope is Christ, that their only hope is the gospel. And God, we ask that you'd give them faith that they might be transferred into your kingdom, that their lives might be a worship service to you. That's what we want from our lives, Father. We want to live for your glory. And so we ask that you'd use this word this morning to do just that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage this morning, and by the way, there is no PowerPoint. You know, sometimes I ascend up here and, you know, I, I have this preparation that I've done and I've had this manuscript and all this. It just all comes together you know, and I have this weird confidence in that. And then there are other times that I don't have as much confidence in that. And it's odd how those are the times that God seems to really use his word. Those are the times that the Holy Spirit tends to just really show up. And I don't know why, but it constantly surprises me how those are the times that God uses. So this is one of those times I'm expecting God to show up in a powerful way. There's no PowerPoint this morning. This passage is just very clear. There's three movements. They're not three points of the sermon, but just three movements in the narrative, three sections of the narrative story here between Abraham and Abimelech. First of all, Abimelech, this king, comes and he seeks a peace treaty or some kind of relationship with Abraham, and that's in verses 21, or excuse me, 22 through 24. Then in verses 25 through 31, 
Abraham makes a covenant with him, a covenant for safety and security and provision. And then in verses 32 through 34, Abraham worships God and thanks him for his grace and mercy and blessing in the land. So let's look first at the first section in verses 22 through 24, where Abimelech seeks this alliance with Abraham for protection and for safety in the land. Now, Abraham and Sarah had been living in this area for some time now. We remember the story back from chapter 20. In chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah traveled down into the Negev, the wilderness of southern Canaan, um, on down towards the Sinai Peninsula. They go down there, and the king of that land is named Abimelech. And as we'll learn in this passage this morning, this is the land of the Philistines. Now, we don't know if the Philistines were actually alive during this time or if it was sometime after this, but we're told that's the land where they were, the land of the Philistines. And so the king of that land was a man named Abimelech. And so he's in the business of recruiting women to his harem. And so he hears about Abraham and Sarah, and he sends for Sarah. She, he thinks that she's you know, all that in a bag of chips, even at her age. And so he goes after her and he begins to recruit her into his harem. And Abraham, because he's fearful of Abimelech, because he's not trusting God in his provision for him to care for him, he lies to Abimelech, the king, and says, oh, she's my sister, so you can take her. And so Abimelech does just that. He takes Sarah away from him and brings her into his harem. But then God miraculously shows up to Abimelech in a dream. And in this dream, he says, "Uh uh-uh, Abimelech, she's not his sister, she's his wife. Don't do this or else. And so Abimelech heeds the warning of the Lord in that dream and, and brings Sarah back to Abraham. And in so doing, confronts Abraham for his deception, but also to, to kind of make amends, he gives Abraham sheep and oxen and servants. And he also says, you can live here. In verse 15 of chapter 20, he says, behold, my land is before you, Abraham. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And so that's what Abraham and Sarah have been doing. They have been dwelling in the land. They've been living and sojourning in southern Canaan. And by the way, that's where Isaac was born in the first half of chapter 21 that we covered last week. But now in this morning's text, Abimelech approaches Abraham again. But this time he's not alone. This time he brings this guy named Phicol, who we're told is the commander of the army. He would be the equivalent today of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In our military, the highest ranking military officer in our nation, the one who advises our president on military readiness. That's who this guy named Phicol is. Now suffice to say that Abraham doesn't bring Phicol along as eye candy. There's a reason why he brings Phicol along. He knows that that Abraham, for one, he's a significant military presence. We, We remember the story of how Abraham and his 318 hired servants defeated and drove out that undefeated coalition army from Ketelomer, that army from the east. And he knows this, and, and those guys are still with Abraham. And so he's a significant military presence. But he's also a significant economic presence and a significant spiritual presence in this land. And so ultimately, Abimelech, he wants something from Abraham. 
And so he brings this guy Phicol along in order to kind of beef up his, uh, his diplomatic entourage so that he can get the deal that he's wanting with Abraham. So what does he say to him? In verse 22, he says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. I want to stop right there because I think this is significant. This pagan king, this Philistine king, looks at Abraham and recognizes divine favor. He says, God is with you in all that you do. Now, what did he see in Abraham that made him conclude this? Well, we don't really know. We're not told in the text what Abimelech saw that made him conclude that God is with Abraham in all that he does. Maybe it was the answered prayers. At the end of chapter 20, after Abimelech returns Sarah, he asks Abraham to pray for him. And so Abraham prays for him, and we're told that, that Abimelech was healed. We're not told what, what Abimelech had that he was healed from, but, but that he was healed and that his wives and his concubines, that, that their wombs were open. So God had closed their wombs because what Abimelech had done in taking Sarah away. And, and, and Abraham prays and their wombs are open and they have children again. So maybe he says, well, God answers your prayers. We see that. God's favor is on you. Maybe, maybe he says this because he sees Isaac. That, that, that in their old age, Abraham is 100 and, and Sarah is 90. And she was known to be barren, and she had a child after 25 years of promising. Maybe Abimelech sees this and and recognizes this as a sign of God's divine favor. We don't know. And by the way, I'm glad that we don't know. I think it's good that we're not given a a, a tangible thing that that Abimelech saw with his eyes and recognize that as divine favor. Because if we were told specifically what that was, then we might be tempted to think that the presence of those things is in fact proof of divine favor. And then conversely, the absence of those things would be proof of God's cursing and judgment. But that is not what God's word says, and that is not what is being taught here in this passage So we don't know what the reason is, but whatever reason, Abimelech looks at Abraham and he says, man, God is with you. God is with you in all that you do. This will later become a common phrase that is repeated for many of the patriarchs throughout their life in the story of Genesis as we continue. In chapter 26, verse 28 of Genesis, the same Abimelech will say the same thing of Isaac. He will say, we see plainly that the Lord, there he uses the personal name of God, that the Lord has been with you. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 3, this will also be said of Isaac's grandson, Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, as Joseph is, is, is in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was another pagan army official. He's the captain of the guard for the Egyptians. And Potiphar looks at Joseph and he says, the Lord is with him. Same is true here. A pagan king recognizes that God is with Abraham in all that he does. Now, I don't think that we can conclude from this that Abimelech had saving faith, that he he knew God's grace. 
But he knew enough to recognize that God is in Abraham. God, God is with him in his life. Abraham's life bore testimony to God's faithfulness. And I think that's even more remarkable because of what we know about Abraham's weak faith. That's the benefit of us walking verse by verse through passages of Scripture. We've seen that Abraham's faith is not perfect. Abraham's faith is not unassailable. It's not unwavering. He walks through journeys of of tests of faith in his life, and we see him fail them over and over again and take matters into his own hands. His faith is not perfect. And Abraham's imperfect faith was not hidden from Abimelech. He saw that in chapter 20. Abraham told him a half-truth about Sarah being his sister because he wasn't trusting God to take care of him. And when he was confronted by Abimelech about this, remember what Abraham said. He said, I didn't think that there was going to be any fear of God in this place. He, He denounces them. And so Abraham had a weak faith, an imperfect faith. He had sin in his heart. He impugned wrong motives on others. He took matters into his own hands. And yet, here this pagan king seeks him out. Why? Because he sees that God is with him. He was convinced that God was with Abraham in everything that he did. So there's a question here for you and I. Does the unbelieving world around us look at us and say, God is with them? Do unbelievers around you in your life look at you and say, God is with that guy. God is with that woman. It's clear. Because of the way that uh, we live our lives, because of the decisions we make. Now, I'm not saying that, you, you, that, that does God always keep you in a, in a blessed life, that you're always healthy and wealthy and happy and all of that. Because that's not the promise that we're given. But is the grace of God so evident in our lives that it is plainly clear to others around us that God is with us? In in, in how we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the, the depth of joy that we have in spite of hardships, the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in a sovereign God who loves sinners like us. And the rock-solid faith that we have in the face of trials, in the face of not having all the answers, that we continue to hang on to this sovereign God of providence. Again, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect because Abraham wasn't. Uh, I'm not saying here that this is about having a never-wavering faith or perfect sinlessness. And I'm so grateful that Scripture doesn't whitewash heroes of the faith. He shows us what they look like in real life, even in the ordinariness of life. Perfect sinlessness and never-wavering faith is not a requirement to display Christ in us to others. Can I say that again? Perfect sinlessness and never never wavering faith is is not a requirement in order for, for others to see Christ in us. They need to see us for who we are, 
What's attractive to people around us is not that you're perfect because the reality is people know that you're not. And that when you try to be perfect and you try to pretend like you were perfect, you're simply displaying hypocrisy. They need to see you as you are, that you're imperfect, but that you have been inundated by grace, that you've been overwhelmed by the grace of God, that you see your need for Jesus because of your imperfections. That's when people see Christ in us. That's when people are attracted to the grace of God in us because they can relate to our imperfections. And so the question for us, the question for you is, is does the unbelieving world around you look at your life and say, God is with him. God is with him. Not because you're perfect, not because you've got everything together, not because you're always happy, but because you've been overwhelmed by the grace of God. Is that what the world sees when it looks at you? So Abimelech comes to Abraham because clearly God, God is with Abraham in all that he does. And so he wants him to deal kindly with him. Look at verses 23 and 24. Abimelech says, Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abimelech says, I don't want you to deal falsely with me. I don't want you to lie to me and deceive me like you did back in chapter 20. Instead, I want you to deal kindly with me. Literally, he says, according to or, or in the same manner of the kindness that I have shown to you. I want you to be kindly to me as well. Now, it's noteworthy that that word, kindly, that you would deal with me according to kindliness, that, that's covenant language. That's the language of covenant love. In, in Hebrew, it's, it's the word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. If you pronounce it like it's written in Hebrew, it's like you're clearing your throat, chesed. And we'll just say chesed so that I don't spit on my family. It's God's chesed love. In other places in Scripture, it's translated as God's loving kindness. His steadfast love that endures forever. Covenant loyalty. Friendship. This is, what, this is what Abimelech is asking from Abraham. He, he, wants, he wants him to be his friend, to, be his, to, to, to treat him with covenant loyalty, to watch out for one another in the land. Keep your finger here and turn with me to 1 Samuel Chapter 20. The story in 1 Samuel is a familiar one. The, the story of David and Jonathan. David has been anointed king, but he's not yet in that role. King Saul is still in that role, and, and he is convinced that King Saul is out for him. And he is. But Jonathan, King Saul's son, is not so convinced. So they have this conversation here in chapter 20 about whether or not King Saul, Jonathan's dad, truly is out to get David. And in the course of this conversation, Jonathan said, listen, if he is, if it turns out that he is after you, I want you to treat me kindly. And he uses the same words as Abimelech does with Abraham. Look at verses 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll read down through verse 17. 
Jonathan says this, but should it please my father, the king, King Saul, should it please him to do you harm, if that's what it turns out to be, that he's really after you, that he wants to do you harm, he wants to, he wants to kill you, then the Lord do so to Jonathan, to me, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away, that you may go away in, in safety. May the Lord be with you, David, as he has been with my father. And if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love. There's that kessed love. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. In other words, if it turns out that my dad the king truly is out to get you, I know that you've been anointed as king, and when you come into your kingdom and, and the Lord kills off all of your enemies, would you show me this kessed? Show me this steadfast love, David. And how, how, how does he know that he's going to get it? Next verse, verse 15. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so that kessed was possible only through the covenant, only through making this kind of entering into this covenant relationship, this covenant loyalty. This is what Abimelech is asking for from Abraham in chapter 21. He's asking for covenant loyalty. To be my friend in the land, my true friend, that we're going to look out for one another in this land. It's an arrangement between two people. But we should note, just as with Jonathan and David, the only way that Abimelech could have this kind of kessed relationship, this kind of covenant loyalty with Abraham, was through the making of a covenant. This kessed love was only theirs through this covenant relationship made between he and Abraham, which is what we'll see next. But before we get there, I can't help but see the connection to us here. The only way that we can have the kessed love of God, and covenant loyalty of our God, to love us as one of his own, to forgive us and to redeem us and to welcome us into his kingdom to give us a forever home to be one of his children the only way we can have this kessed love is through a covenant with god through jesus christ so that when we find ourselves in a predicament of sin and we realize we recognize how precarious that predicament is a sinner before a holy god and that we don't deserve peace with God, that in that moment we will recognize that our only hope is this kessed love of God, the steadfast love of God that is ours only through the entering into of a covenant. We're reminded of when later David, when he is king, he sins with Bathsheba, the famous sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her, and then later has her husband Uriah killed. After Nathan the prophet 
rebukes him in his own unique way and shows him his sin, David comes face to face with, with his own sin. He recognizes that he's a sinner before, before a holy God. And what does he say? Psalm 51 is David's psalm of confession in this moment. In the first verse of that psalm, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David knew that his only hope for mercy was that if God acted according to his kissed love, his steadfast love, same is true for us. Our only hope for kissed love, our only hope for covenant love is to beg God for mercy through Jesus Christ. And so the question for you this morning is, do you have that kissed love? Are you in that covenant with God, that that covenant of relationship and loyalty. More about that in just a moment. But in our story, we move on to the second section, verses 25 through 31. So Abimelech seeks this peace treaty with Abraham. And now Abraham consents to this by entering into this covenant with... 25 begins with the word when. I I think a better translation of that word should be then or but. Some of the other English translations use that. The word when makes us think that this was somehow later, that it it took place, this conversation took place. It's the same conversation. It's simply a place marker there to tell us that when he said this, when he confronted him about the well, then in response to that, Abimelech gave his defense. So verse 25, then... Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So notice first in verse 24 that Abraham initially agrees to this. He says, I will swear this oath. Yes, I will do this. I will will enter into this covenant with you. But before he actually enters into the covenant, before, before they make a covenant together, Abraham has something he needs to clear the air about with Abimelech. Because apparently Abimelech's servants had seized one of Abraham's wells and and taken it to be his own. And so Abraham is saying, listen, if we're going to enter into this covenant relationship, we can't have this stuff happening. We've got to make sure that's dealt with. And so Abimelech says, "I, I, I don't know who has done this thing. Verse 26, you did not tell me. And I have not heard of it until today. And so we have no choice but to take Abimelech at his word. He didn't know about this. He didn't know who did it. He just finds out about it here in this setting. But in a sense, this is his apology to Abraham. I didn't know about it. It's his admission that it's wrong. His servant should not have done this. And because the story goes on to return this well to Abraham, he remedies that situation and he gives it back to Abraham. So this corresponds to us, church, and our our need for repentance, our our need to recognize that we have sinned against God, we have have violated his commands, and as a result, we need to come before him and and express sorrow. You're right, we've done wrong, We we need to make this right with you. And so this is his apology, and clearly Abraham accepts this because then he moves on directly to the covenant itself. But before we move on, I want you to notice something. I want you to recognize something about Abraham here. I want you to see how he's changed. I want you to see here how 
He's different than the Abraham that we saw in chapter 20. We don't see any deception in Abraham here. There's no lying. It's the same Abimelech. There's no fear of Abimelech. It's not the same fear that we saw in chapter 20 when he was fearful for his own life, so he lied about Sarah being his sister. There's no fear here. There's no tricks. What there is is just clear, honest, straightforward. Dude, this is how it is. Laying out the facts and then dealing honestly with Abimelech, the king, about them. And I think what we're seeing here in Abraham, as, and we began to see some of this last week when, when God called on Abraham to do the thing that was the hardest yet to date in his life for him to do, which is to send his firstborn Ishmael away. There and here, what we're beginning to see is some of the fruit that God is bearing in Abraham's life as he has led Abraham through these faith journeys. He's been learning these lessons about taking matters into his own hands. He's been learning about trusting God, even though he doesn't have all the answers and doesn't, doesn't see how God's going to work this out. We're starting to see some of the fruit of that in Abraham's life as we see a completely different Abraham. This is what happens when you're convinced that God is with you. This is, this is what, you're ha- what happens when you, when you finally come to the recognition that God is a promise keeper, that he will keep his promises, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. And we're starting to see some of the, the fruit of faith in Abraham's life here. I pray and hope that God would continue to grow our faith in this respect. I pray and hope that God would continue to grow my faith in this as he's still leading me through faith journeys where I have to trust him. And I'm sure he is for you as well. Over time, we're going to start to see some of the fruit of that. Let us persevere and stay in the fight and not give up and continue to trust in God. We're starting to see the fruit in Abraham's life. And we pray and hope for this similar fruit in ours. Verse 27 So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So he he handles this little well thing, all right, that's dealt with, so now we're going to enter into this covenant. We're going to enter into this, this covenant relationship together. He says, the two men made a covenant. Now in Hebrew, that phrase literally means that they cut a covenant, the Hebrew uh, berit means to cut. It means they, they cut a covenant. Today we might say that, that they cut a deal. Back then they said that we need to cut a covenant. So the sheep and the oxen that Abraham gives to Abimelech is not a gift for Abraham. In fact, they're probably some of the same sheep and oxen that Abimelech had given him in chapter 20. But it's not a gift to Abimelech. It's the animals with which they will use in this covenant-cutting ceremony. Abraham and Abimelech used these animals to cut a covenant between them. And so we're reminded of the covenant-cutting ceremony back in Genesis chapter 15. God had made these promises, had repeated these promises, had reiterated the promises to Abraham. Promise of a son, promise of land, Promise that through your son, I will make you into a great nation. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth, he said. 
He had repeated these promises to Abraham over and over. And in chapter 15, he leads, them, he leads Abraham to, into this covenant-cutting ceremony. You remember the story. He tells them to go out and get these animals, this long list of animals. And he says, cut them in half. That wasn't the way you did offerings. You burnt the offerings. But he said, cut them in half. Lay them in two halves. And then we remember the story that, that God passed through the animals, through the halves of the animals in the form of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, making that covenant-cutting ceremony, ratifying those promises, saying in essence to Abraham, Abraham, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not come through on all of my promises. And now, this covenant-cutting ceremony is happening in chapter 20. So the, the covenant-cutting ceremony here in chapter 21 points back to that ceremony in chapter 15. But there's a unique difference. This, in chapter 21, is a bilateral covenant. Presumably, both Abraham and Abimelech agree to the terms, and both of them walk between the two halves here. But the ceremony that took place in chapter 15 was a unilateral covenant. That's why it was a covenant of grace. Because it was only the Lord who walked through there. He didn't ask Abraham to walk through there. Abraham, as long as you do your stuff, I'll do my stuff. No, it was only the Lord. It was a unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham. May it be done to me as was done to these animals. Abraham, I'm going to keep my promises to you. Regardless of how much your faith wavers, and teeters and totters, no matter how much sin is in your heart and your life, I'm going to do this in you and through you. It's a covenant of grace. And we're reminded, church, of the covenant that God has made with sinners like us. The writer of Hebrews called it the eternal, the blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. Let me read to you from the benediction of the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought, you, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of the eternal covenant, that's where we, whom God has saved by grace through faith, become sheep in his pasture. It is through the blood of the eternal covenant. Referring there to the covenant of grace that God made with sinful humanity at the cross of Calvary. When Jesus shed his blood for sinners like us, there he shed the blood of the eternal covenant. And in making that promise in that covenant that we, his children, only by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that the promise would be that we would not be judged for our sins, that we would not be sentenced to what we deserve, which is eternal judgment in hell, that we will one day meet our creator and our redeemer face to face, and that we will be with him in eternal glory forever. 
after this life ends. And he made that promise sure and unshakable by ratifying it with a covenant. The covenant, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, the blood of the eternal covenant. In the same way, Abraham and Abimelech make their covenant promises to one another here, make those promises sure and and unshakable. I'm really going to keep my promise to be covenantally loyal to you as long as I sojourn in this land. They're, they're, They're ratifying those promises. They're making those promises sure and unshakable by entering into this covenant ritual. But then Abraham does something interesting. He sets aside some of those animals for a different kind of offering to Abimelech. Look at verses 28 and following. We're told Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And Abraham said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because... There, both of them swore an oath. And just as with the covenant-cutting ceremony that we saw in chapter 15, later after that, God gave Abraham a sign of that covenant, a witness to that covenant. And the sign, he said, would be a witness to God and to you that I will keep my promises and it will stay with you. And the sign of that covenant, that they belong to God and God belonged to them, was circumcision. And so here, Abraham gives Abimelech a sign of this covenant, something that will stand as a witness for him, that this well belongs to Abraham. And so these seven ewe lambs, these young female lambs, serve a a dual meaning in this text. In one sense, they point forward to the sign of our covenant relationship with God, if we know him by faith in Jesus. The sign of our covenant promises from God is baptism. And baptism is, is that symbol, that it's, it's a symbol and the reminder that we have been, we've died to sin and, and that we've risen in new life. We have resurrection life because God has put life in us through the Spirit. And it's also a reminder of the final resurrection when our Redeemer takes us home and that we now have peace with God. And so it points forward to that sign, but also in the context of this story, these seven new lambs also serve as a witness to both Abimelech and to Abraham that this well belongs to Abraham and his descendants. And we'll see this well over and over again in the story of Genesis. And they they name this land Beersheba, and that's really a play on words, Beersheba, Sheba, the word for seven And the word for oath is the same root word in the Hebrew. And so he calls it here the well of seven or the well of the oath. And this well would serve as a reminder to Abraham specifically because he stays in this area of God's loving kindness and covenant keeping faithfulness to him for generations as this well goes on for generations. So that leads us to the third and final section of this narrative in verses 32 through 34 where we see Abraham worshiping God, thanking God for his grace and mercy and his, his kindness to him. Look at verses 32 through 34. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. 
And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days. This tamarisk tree here, too, is, is, is also kind of a memorial for Abraham. Maybe the ewe lambs that were given to Abimelech were more of a sign for him. But the tamarisk tree that is planted here in Beersheba, where Abraham continued to sojourn for many, many, uh, many days, um, and where really the, the bulk of the remainder of his life and the bulk of Isaac's life is spent in this area of southern Canaan. They don't get up into northern Canaan really until um, Isaac's children's Jacob and Esau. And so the, the tamarisk tree served as a covenant reminder to them in their days and generations past. But note here what he calls the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord here, which means he's, he's worshiping God, he's thanking God, and he calls God El Elam. Um, he had already called him um, El Elyon, God Most High, earlier. And now he's referring to him as El Elon, the, the eternal God, the everlasting God, the God who will never end. Over the last 25 years, Abraham has been learning something about Yahweh, this God. Learning something about the steadfastness of God. Keep your finger here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to close with this passage. In Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet. He's prophesying to Israel in her captivity. And in her captivity, she's growing weary. She's beginning to lose hope, Israel is. Beginning to think that God had forgotten about her in her captivity. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah says this of God. And I think, I think this is part of what Abraham is beginning to learn about God through the journeys that God has led him through. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, beginning of verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The psalmist says in Psalm, familiar Psalm 100, the very end of that, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Abraham was learning this about God, that he's an everlasting God, that he doesn't faint or, or, or grow weary like, like men do. And so our job is to wait on the Lord. That's the lesson he's been learning. 
He's promised you this. Now wait on the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't step out of his will. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, church. Wait on the Lord. He is everlasting. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't grow weary. Trust in his strength and his power, not our own. And Abraham's beginning to see this. He's, he's seeing that, that God, in fact, gives power to the faint. He renews their strength. And he's seeing this through the provision of this well now. In this land in which he will sojourn. God has provided for him and for his descendants for generations to come. And so in response, he worships God. He plants this tree as a reminder that God is faithful through the ages. That he is an everlasting God. He never grows faint, never grows weary. He always keeps his promises. And we're told that there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham's closing example here at the end of chapter 21 is is that of a, a pilgrim. A pilgrim in a strange land. A pilgrim who stops to worship God because he's learned that God is faithful. No matter what's happening around him in this strange land, he stops to thank him for his kindness and his provision. Even in the ordinary of life, he does this. And this example of Abraham here would serve an example as an example for the Israelites of Moses' day as he writes this story. The children of Israel are in a strange land. They're in the wilderness, wandering. They're pilgrims there. The story from Abraham's life would serve as an example to them. It would serve as an example to, to King David as he later found himself in the land of the Philistines. Strange land. It would also serve as an example to the early Christians in the New Testament era as they found themselves to be strangers in a foreign land. But it also serves as an example, church, to us today because that's what we are. We're pilgrims in a land that's strange to us, in a land that's not our home And in this strange land, we can know that our God is still in control, that he keeps his promises, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, that he is a God of perfect provision for us. And so we too should worship him in thankfulness for his kindness and his provision and his mercy, knowing that he never fails to keep his promises no matter how strange the world around us might get. Let's pray.